way down here when you and I were traveling, we were talking about addiction being stronger than love and stronger mm-hmm. than gravity. It is. And quite often what we try to help people understand is like trying to explain addiction to someone who wasn't in it was like trying to explain the color red to somebody who can't see. Yeah. Or a lion roaring to somebody that cannot hear. Yes. And this is one of the misconceptions that I think other people have is that they don't realize what a horrible existence being in addiction is. Yeah, I don't, I think um, people who don't have any direct experience with it just think it's like you're just waking up and choosing to do these things every day. But after so long, it, it it's not really a choice. Like I could wake up and want with everything in my being to not do drugs, but I wake up and that's what I do. Wow. You know, no matter how much crap my dad's giving me or how much trouble I'm in with the law or any of that. It's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to wake up and to be honest, like I don't want to wake up and stick a needle in my arm every day, but I have no control over it anymore. For people out there who don't understand that believe that addiction is a matter of willpower and a matter of choice, could you address that a little bit? If it was willpower, I don't think anybody would be addicted. I don't know any... In all the rehabs and jails and experience on the street that I've had, I've I've never met one single addict who was like, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. You know, that's not, it just, it becomes a matter of like, you know, with a heroin specifically of not being sick. And the biggest thing for me that like really solidified it not being willpower is when I was in state prison for over two years. And I really, truly thought like, you know, I've been clean for this long. I'm not going to get out and get high. And I got out and I relapsed. And it was like, that's when I think, and it's not like I thought consciously before that, like, this is willpower, but it was like a slap in the face. Like this really is bigger than me. You know, I really don't have any control over this unless I work on myself. Admitting you're powerless is not defeat. It's merely surrender. It's understanding that by myself, I can't deal with this. I need some help. Yeah. And no no one wants to accept the fact that they can't beat anything. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) Especially people in addiction. We're not not very good at taking direction. That's correct, yeah. You know, I would like to have stayed sober after I got out of prison, but I think that's what I needed to realize that, like, this truly is – out of my, like I am powerless over this instead of trying, you know, to defeat this thing a million different ways and mostly my way, different ways, not anybody else's way. But like, it just, it's, it, it, I remember the day that I told my dad, I think I needed to go to rehab again. And obviously he was not happy with me, but I remember sitting there before I told him and just thinking like, this is what it feels like. This is what surrendering feels like (laughs) because I just was so, you know, my relapse only lasted a few weeks, but I was more mentally and emotionally and spiritually dead than I had ever been. And even in years where I used for consecutively for years. Well, that didn't happen very often because jail, but like, I just couldn't believe that after all this time and that I would end up in that same point, but worse than I had ever felt before. 
And again, it's a progressive disease. And what we try to help people understand is that you came from a good family. Yeah. You came from you came from a fine place uh, where you lived. Uh, you had the creature comforts. You had the material goods. You were popular. You were li- you weren't living under the bridge. Okay. Yeah. And this shows that uh, addiction shows no discrimination. Mm-hmm. Okay. It 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 grabs on to you and the fact that it gets worse and it never gets better and help understand that it's a physical addiction and also a mental obsession and the mental obsession can be much stronger than a physical addiction. Oh yes. That I found out. So when that we're reactive and there's a line in the book that says there'll come a time when we have no defense against that first use. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you relapsed. And uh, so what most people don't understand and I, hope maybe if you can, you can share a little bit about like withdrawal can make you sick enough to wish you were dead. Could yeah. you, could you describe withdrawal to folks out there? Oh dear God. <laughs> um, I wouldn't wish withdrawal on my worst enemy. Like the physical, you know, just the physical symptoms like with hot and cold and sweaty and just feeling like everything hurts is like, bad enough but when you add in the mental factor it's just like looking back at it now I don't know why I would ever willing after going through withdrawal the first time and convincing myself I just had the flu but it's nothing I mean it is kind of like the flu but it's like way worse and like why would I ever choose to put myself through that again if it wasn't something out of my control um, I I saw a picture in a book somewhere of this, like, it was more of like a scribble, but it was like this shadow <laughs> creature, and basically its eyes were like bulging out of its head, and its mouth was like all gross, and it was like, that's what withdrawal feels like in a picture. I don't, it's really hard to explain how bad it actually is, because you, you can list the symptoms like hot and cold flashes, and the sweating, and the restless legs, and vomiting and diarrhea and all the other nasty stuff that comes with it. But until you actually experience it, you don't understand like how bad it really is. No, no. And again, we try to help people understand. And the fact that punishing does not work. Okay. You can't love someone enough or punish them enough to get them into recovery. That, yeah. Nope. You've been in jail. Yep. Well, tell me, uh, Miss Emily, how'd that go? <laughs> um, the first time, I was scared. I didn't want to be there. and But after the first time, it was like, jail isn't a scary place. I mean, the scariest part of jail was going through withdrawal. You know, and I remember the second time I went to jail, which wasn't long after the first time, um... The first time I got like ROR'd and got to go to rehab and was in a halfway house and relapsed shockingly. And um, the second time I went to jail, I was, I remember laying in my cell thinking, if I just chewed my finger off, they would have to take me to the hospital, right? And give me some kind of medication and, or like having, like someone could, I could plan an escape here and like, you know, get a million more years in jail. But um, every time I've gone to jail, I think about that 
that second time I went to jail and was going through withdrawal and like literally biting my finger hard enough where I was like, not hard enough to bleed because that really hurts, but thinking like, I could do this. I could chew my, I could chew my fingers off and thinking that was like a rational thought to have. So in this world, the abnormal becomes the normal and our mind, as we often talk about on this show, becomes that dysregulated thicker and plays a whole lot of tricks. Mm -hmm. Okay. And (laughs) (laughs) so you can call your, this mind a trickster and it's constantly trying to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't stop. So tell us a little bit about what those conversations are like, what it's saying to you. And eventually sometimes we listen. Um, I think the most common conversation that went on in my head is like the angel and the devil. That cliche, like one hand over here telling me not to do, you know, just don't do it today. Just don't, don't get drugs. Don't buy drugs. Don't do drugs. And then the other, like, you could do it just once. You don't have a problem. It's not that bad. You know, you've never done this yet. You've never done that yet. And now it's like, I don't have any things I haven't done yet except for take someone else's life Mm -hmm. and it's been that same conversation since I was 17 years old but you know you don't have a problem it's not that bad so how do you deal with that voice today it's still that this still occasionally makes an appearance yeah it does unfortunately (laughs) um now I think my the consequences now are different than they were when I was a teenager or even three years ago. My consequences were different. You know, my consequences for so long were, you're going to go to jail. Okay, jail's not that bad. You're going to die. All right, well, that would be a relief, you know. Um, but now my consequences, you know, potentially losing my daughter and not being able to see her and that I just couldn't even imagine doing that so it makes those that the devil on my shoulder it does a lot to quiet that and I know that that's not true for everybody because I know a lot of women who have children and you know that that love is not enough it wasn't enough for my mom it wasn't enough for my dad at some points in his life and you know I know one day it might not be enough for me but it is at the moment and that's all we need to talk about that's all we need to say is in the moment yeah. Uh, everything is in the moment. In the 12-step world, all these cliches, we use them so often and I think they lose their meaning. But if we pay attention to them, yes, the only time that we have to stay sober and clean is right now. Yeah. Because that's the only time that matters. It's the only time there is. Yeah, and I don't think I ever really um... – most of my life was always worried about, like, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? And right now it's like – since I had my daughter, it's just been like, this is all I need right now. This is what I need right well, now. <laughs> whatever it takes to have that anchor, whatever it takes to pay attention on purpose to be in the moment. Mm-hmm. And on this show, we often talk about time traveling. And I believe that when I met you earlier, uh, mm-hmm. we did that time traveling exercise about the past and the future and, and the importance of being in the present. So tell us a little bit about the the moment of clarity. Tell us about the the moment that you made a decision. You know, after this last relapse, because after, up to a certain point, I cared whether I lived or died, but after my mom passed away, I did not care. It was like using to die, basically. Could you, if you feel comfortable enough, could you share? I thought that was one of the most powerful, powerful parts of your talk. I had, me and my mom had decided, I used 
cocaine and other substances with my mom on occasion. And she was like my best friend. Like we had a really unhealthy codependent relationship, but I wouldn't have changed it for anything in the world because we were so close and I felt comfortable telling her anything and everything. And, um, I was, we decided that we were going to like get clean and not even smoke weed or anything together. So we had a maybe two months clean and I went to, she was living in about three hours from where I grew up and I was living in Catanning and I went back to, um, Allentown because I was going to, I had visions of myself being this kingpin drug dealer and I was going to go there and buy things for much cheaper than I could sell them for out where I was living and my mom's house was kind of like the halfway between point. So I, um, on a Thursday or I went to her house on a Wednesday, stayed overnight into Thursday and then drove to Allentown and was hanging out with friends and ended up relapsing because you got to try it before you buy it and didn't tell my mom that though. And, um, then Friday I was Nope, Sunday. I stayed the whole weekend. Sunday I was driving back to her house and um, there was a Steelers game on that night and I called my mom and I could tell she had been drinking, which which I was upset about, but I had relapsed so I couldn't really say anything. And um, I just asked her not to go anywhere, that I would be there in less than three hours. Just, you know, stay where you're at, at home. And so I drove my merry little way, and as I called, or as I got closer, I kept calling her cell phone and calling the house phone, and there was no answer, no answer, and got to her house eventually, and when I got there, my mom was not there, and I went in, and my stepdad was asleep on the couch, and it was just shortly before the Steelers game was going to start. And I woke my stepdad up and I was like, where's my mom? And he, I guess they had gone into an argument and he thought he hid the car keys well enough, but apparently he did not. And, um, there's only two bars. They live literally in the middle of nowhere. Like the nearest Walmart is like 45 minute drive away. So there's only two bars that she could have possibly been at. And they called the one and they said, oh no, she's not here she hasn't been here, so I opened the phone book to call the other one. Double D's is the name of the bar. Not that that matters, but I remember I opened up the phone book, and my friend Chris had come to watch the Steelers game, so he got there, and um, I went outside, and we bullshitted for a little bit and smoked a cigarette, and I heard this noise but didn't really know what it was, and a few minutes or seconds later, the phone rang, and it was the neighbor's down in the little hollow and they said that my mom had wrecked and that we needed to get down there. So I called my dad and I told him that she was dead and he was like, what are you talking about? Just go down there, find out what hospital they're taking to and I'll be on my way. And so we had to drive down to the neighbors and there's like a little cluster of houses there. So the we had to park down a little bit on this hill, and when I got out of the car, my friend Chris drove the car down because I was, and I just, there was no way I could have driven there, um, even though it was just, like, right down the street, but 
I was walking up and all the neighbors were like, I mean, there's not that many, but it seemed like a lot of people were like lined up on the sides of the street and they were just looking at me. And I remember them like their facial expressions just looked like they just felt so bad for me. And as I walked closer to my mom's car, all I could smell was alcohol and a pine tree because she hit a pine tree and this like metallic smell, which is blood. And, um, there were no first responders there yet because they lived in the middle of nowhere. And I remember like looking in her car window and just like knowing that she, there was no way she was going to live. So, I went back and they wanted me to sit in my car. Oh, my poor stepdad. They wanted me to sit in my car until they could. Because uh, eventually, I think a fire truck showed up first and then an ambulance, paramedics and stuff. And they were like, you know, just sit here. We're going to let you know. And I don't know how much time passed. I know I smoked a lot. I was chain smoking cigarettes because I still smoked at the time. And, um,. The next thing I know, I my stepdad was opening my door and he just said he was gone, which I had already known. Like, there was no way she's going to live. And um, as soon as he said that, I just said, like, what am I going to do? What am I supposed to do? Because I didn't think that I could live without my mom because she was, like, my best friend. And... I don't know, I just didn't think I could live. And I, I remember the paramedics was like, we need to check you out, like you're in shock. And I was like, I've been through this before. When my brother died, I just want to go home and be with my puppies. <laughs> and so Chris took me home and before the cops even were able to state police in the corner, were even able to like bring me her purse and stuff, I was already shooting heroin in the bathroom because I I had no intentions of living without my mom. But here I am. That was in 2009 and that's, it's 2019. That's the point. Here you are. <laughs> yeah. Here you are. So tell us about the next part of the story. Tell us about what happened and how you are now. Please check out our website at fishingwithoutfaith.com, where you can listen to the show, comment on our discussions, and find out where you can subscribe to our podcast. If you're interested in flying the colors of Fishing Without Bait, click the shop icon on our website. We have clothing, mugs, cell phone cases, and so much more. Show the world that you fish without bait. This show is a member of the Sorgatron Media Podcast Network. Find out more at sorgatronmedia.com.